From Holland to Hampton, from Brisbane to Brussels, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experiences. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello there, and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal. I am your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another story from across the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. Listeners, it's great to be back with you this week, and I have a great episode to share with you today. Listen, one of the reasons we started the show was because my mind was always blown when talking with people at conferences or meeting them in the field and discovering all the cool and unique hobbies people would have when, well, they weren't lawyering. In fact, it remains one of my favorite things about hosting the show, which is why I absolutely loved chatting with this week's guest, Tiffany Compras, a partner at Fisher Broyles, seated in both Miami and where I'm joining you today from lovely Paris, France. Now, pop quiz time. Which of these jobs did Tiffany hold before she became a lawyer and arbitrator? And trust me, you don't need insider information here. Just have a thought, have a think. Was it A, opera singer, B, art gallery manager, or C, law firm clerk and receptionist? Go ahead, take a second and think about it. Trick question, literally all three. Tiffany has one of the most fascinating and dynamic backgrounds of all the guests we've ever had on the show. And we talk with her about her past professional lives as well as all the cool things she does in the world of commodities law, global shipping, and supply chain. The CISG, and of course, her work as an arbitrator. So, warm up your singing voice, me, 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 and enjoy my conversation with Tiffany Campanis, and we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you a tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listen, welcome to the show for this week. It is the week of that new holiday, new for the rest of y'all. You know, we in the black community, we can celebrate in for a minute, but it is Juneteenth week. And even though we had the Juneteenth episode last week with Regina, and I appreciate y'all showing support, it is the week of Juneteenth. So of course we had to just give a shout out and show some love for the culture. With me today, I've got a very special guest, a friend, a colleague, someone that I've gotten to know working in the world of international arbitration, and someone that you should know, Tiffany Compress at Fisher Boyles. Tiffany, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris, and happy Juneteenth. Thank you. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. So Tiffany has a really interesting and I think uh, sort of fascinating background in that she does some work in uh, a couple of different fields that, you know, you know, the average commercial arbitration lawyer come across doesn't necessarily have the skill set for. But before we get into that, we're going to ask you that question, Tiffany, that we ask all of our guests. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? I'm a rather unusual attorney. I am an international disputes attorney at Fisher Broyles, where I'm a partner. I'm based in Paris and Miami, and I tend to handle 
a lot of cases involving CISG and international trade. And I'm a former opera singer. Former opera singer. I did not know that. Very cool. Yeah, it gives you kind of a little flavor that there's something else behind just being an attorney. Um, but that's how I started out my career, actually. Okay, well, look, when we have to do the next version of the show, we might have to say, hey, can you take a, come out of retirement and build out a few notes for us? <laughs> Happy to do it. We'll give it a shot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so let's, uh, let's go just a bit deeper there. Um, did you know that you always wanted to be a lawyer? How does an opera singer find herself from the stage to the courtroom or being in front of the tribunal? You know, we're performing in front of the tribunal, right? So it's actually not as different as you would think. Um, I started singing opera when I was 13. I was quite young and I just really fell in love with it. And I went to music school and after a while, I concluded uh, for many reasons that the business of music was not for me. Uh, so I thought I'm going to do something else and I'll sing on the side. And I bounced around for quite a while trying to figure out what was the right thing for me. Um, I wanted to do something where I could travel a lot. Um, that was very important to me. I grew up in a very international household. Um, I grew up speaking several languages and because of opera, I spoke several more. So I wanted to really put those skills to use. I recognized that they were very valuable skills. And I bartended, I met a lot of people, and I eventually landed a gig at an art gallery that I came to manage. It was an international art gallery. And the owner of the gallery always had his attorney on speed dial at his right-hand side, like his consigliere. And I thought, I can do that. That's pretty cool. You know, the law is in everything. I can find a way to work in this sector in an area that I love, maybe the law uh, with, um, sorry, maybe tie it into art, maybe tie it into opera, music, other things that I was passionate about. So that's what got me going in the direction of becoming an attorney. Wow. No, that, that's very cool and very interesting. Um, and well, look, there's so many threads there. And unfortunately, we only have an hour of time, uh, you know, together. But, you know, we'll have to pull at some of those. Um, you know, a lot of things you've thrown out there from art to, to bartending to opera. Um, you've had you've worn like a bunch of different hats. Yeah, I went to law school a couple of years later because I, I wanted to really make sure it was the right thing. Right. So I started out as a receptionist at a, a startup law firm. Um, that had broken off for a bit from a, a bigger law firm doing construction work, broken off, taken a bunch of clients. And I was like, I need to find out if I can be in an office. I mean, I had always vehemently rejected the concept of working at a desk in any capacity. So for people that had known me my whole life, this was a huge 180, a complete about face. And I needed to make sure before I invested so much time and money in law school that it would really work. So I think that was, uh, very prudent on my part. <laughs> I, I'd say so. And I think, well, it seems to have worked out or be working out well so far. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thankfully. Thankfully. And so, you know, one more thing that I would ask um, before we, we get into it further. So um, you mentioned you speak multiple languages. What languages do you speak? I can work in English, Spanish, and French. I went to law school in the U.S. and then I did two M2, which are kind of LLM equivalents. 
um, in Paris at Sciences Po and at the Université de Paris uh, Sorbonne Law School. And um, I used to speak fluently Italian and German. My German has completely fallen by the wayside, even though it was my favorite language. I know people think that's a little crazy. I think German is really sexy. And um, my Italian comes back, you know? I've, I've worked in Italy and I, I have a fair number of Italian clients. And so I'm, I'm conversational and I can, I can get back in pretty quickly when I'm there. Okay, okay. And then of course Spanish, yeah? Right. Yes. Spanish and obviously English. Well, I'm still working on English. No, I get it. I get it. <laughs> um, OK, no. So that's great. And so and you also mentioned that you grew up in a very international environment. Um, what, what types of places did you call home or what kind of places did you move between? Um, well, so my dad was a diplomat uh, representing the Dominican Republic. And so I was almost born in Haiti. And the week that I was due, we were transferred to Venezuela. So. I was born there and um, I spent a lot of time between the Dominican Republic, the United States, and well, in the early years, Venezuela, until we eventually moved to Miami. And then I went to a French school starting at age like, I don't know, eight, um, all the way until high school. So I was very immersed in French culture um, and the French education system from a very early age. So I, that's why I grew up completely trilingual, English, Spanish, French. And, you know, oh. traveling was a big part of it. No, sure, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And um, and, and adds a lot of context too, that, that's really cool. Um, so then, and oh, sorry, one more question before we, we, we jump into it. I mean, where, where did you go to law school? Uh, Georgetown for Georgetown, uh, my JD no. and then, right. And then the Sorbonne, uh, University of Paris one Sorbonne. Uh, for my M2 and also Sciences Po for another M2 in Paris. Okay. Okay. So you do, um, you know, a bunch of different things and you're with Bishop Royals, as you said, and that work is this counsel. Do you do anything else in the legal field aside from counsel work? Absolutely. I work as an arbitrator as well. Um, and it's interesting because one of the, you know, one of the things that I do a lot that I'm sure we'll cover is my work with commodities. And I have leveraged that, as they say, to um, start working as an arbitrator. So I have handled cases with um, some industry-specific international arbitration institutions like the uh, Fruit and Vegetable Dispute Resolution Corporation, known as the DRC, and it was started by uh, under NAFTA and uh, continues to this day. It's it's actually an excellent arbitration organization and with the ICC, of course. So I've had a couple of cases there and I'm, I'm really hoping to build that side of my practice because I, I enjoy it tremendously. Um, sometimes I, I kind of test myself and I take, uh, I do like a hot take and I write notes to myself of what I think right at the beginning with very little information on the case. And I revisit that, um, at the end of the case with all my notes and how my thinking has changed and and why you know and then i look at i look back at it okay why did i think that you know what biases might i be um harboring that i didn't notice so that i can constantly um you know stay aware of that and stay on top of that aspect but it's just i really really love the work sure no that makes a lot of sense um Okay, so you sit as a, as an arbitrator. Okay, very cool. And then, well, look, I'll tell you, you know, you're, you're being too uh, humble here. 
Um, you are someone that also has a great familiarity with the CISG, isn't that right? Yeah, that's actually, that's true. Thanks for bringing that up. A lot of the cases that I get as an arbitrator, as counsel as well, but certainly as an arbitrator, um, are because of my knowledge of the CISG um, and my experience with it. I guest lecture at uh, at the UM International Arbitration Program sometimes uh, with uh, the professors there on the CISG. It comes up a lot in my work, um, and it's certainly one of the reasons that I get called upon as an arbitrator more frequently. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. And this is, uh, I guess, transitioning into things just a little bit. Um, so you work at international arbitration. International arbitration famously is a very niche or very specific part of the practice of law. How did you stumble across that? Um, you know, if, if you were starting an art gallery and, you know, the, the, the potential lawyer to art gallery owners or managers was where you were thinking about it. How did that translate into international arbitration? Well, it's kind of a funny story. So I went to Georgetown in particular because of the strength of their international law program. And I did a first internship at a French law firm, right, my first summer. And um, I did it with an M&A group at a very well-known French law firm called Senons at the time, which has since been absorbed into Dentons. And um, I still am very, I'm quite close with my mentor there, who's Pascal Chabney. And so I was ostensibly working for the international M&A team. And then I got to know a partner there by the name of Sarah Francois Ponce, who did international arbitration. And she did a lot of investor state arbitration, which I had learned about um, uh, in law school a little bit, um, even though it was just after my first year. And I did a project with her and I fell in love with it. I was like, oh my God, I thought I wanted to do transactional work, but this is where it's at. It's so fascinating. I loved the tension between the states and the investors. I just, I was really interested in, in that and the different ways that it could play out. So I started just learning about it, reading about it, uh, researching more about it. And I learned as I progressed through law school and interviews and working at different firms and such that it was an extremely difficult niche within a niche to get into. <laughs> so um, I kind of deviated a little bit from that path and went into the commercial side, which I love. It's just a completely different animal, but I love it just because of the relationships that I have with my clients and um, the ways that I guide them and how that later translates into, okay, how can we avoid this dispute in the future? And, uh, and I've really kind of come into that conciliated role because it's you know when you're doing commercial you can weave yourself into the fabric of your client's business uh, much more than when you're doing investment work in my experience and um, it just changes the nature of your relationship with your client and it makes it much richer I think well, I think that's true. And I think the lawyers that the external counsel that do the best, that have a lot of clients, that have a lot of people that come back to them are the ones that, just like you've said, sort of weave themselves into the business that understand the business in a very sort of personal way that those in-house counsel feel comfortable calling them up because they have a partner in the legal world that truly understands their business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what it's all about especially doing a lot of commodities work. I, I listened to one of your, um, you know, I listened to pretty much all of your podcasts, but I re-listened to the one about palm oil. 
um, because you had mentioned um, mentioned it when we were talking about doing this. And I, I agree with them so much that it's really about knowing the business. I think probably in commodities arbitration more than any other, but I really think that that's one of the things that makes a great attorney is in general, is knowing your client's business um, inside and out. Like one of the things that I tend to do as a matter of practice is um, I, my clients are happy, you know, I'm happy to have them at my office and, and I'm, I welcome them, but I want to go to their place of business. First of all, it's more convenient for them. Um, but more importantly, it helps me understand them. It put, I see them in their context. You know, I see people popping to ask them questions. Um, I can get to know the not only the um, their place of business, but that kind of gives me a map into how their business operates and functions. Right. So I find that to be an indispensable aspect of getting to know the client. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, and I think that without the, that sort of seeing behind the curtain a little bit, it's very difficult to to really sort of build that trust, not just with the lawyer, but as importantly, the business people within a, an organization, that that's critical. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, just continuing right along there. And, uh, you know, you mentioned it just a little bit there, and we might talk about that some, or we might, you know, talk about some other things too. Um, one of the areas, one of your practice areas is the world of commodities among the, the several or the, the, the many ones that you do. When we talk about commodities, they could mean a lot of different things. What exactly does that mean? Or, you know, what does the lay person, what do you think the lay person should know about that term? So we're not talking about investment commodities. Like we're not talking about uh, like anything that's going to involve the Securities Act <laughs> um, <laughs> is one thing, because I think a lot of people think about commodity futures and trading, you know, and that's not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about products that are commoditized and interchangeable, right? Like uh, metals, cotton, grain, fruit, um, things like that. Those, um, at least in the fruit and vegetable portion, they do function very much like a stock market. The price of those products is going to change with demand um, and with a lot of other factors that go into the price. But there's a ticker, you know, it, and the price changes in the morning. It could be one price. In the evening, it could be a different price for that particular product. Um, so that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about commodities. So when we're talking about commodities arbitration, we're talking about arbitrations that are specifically geared towards handling disputes related to those commodities. And there are different institutions or organizations that handle those arbitrations depending on the commodity. So you've got a specific uh, London Metal Exchange for metals, you've got GAFTA for grains, um, and you have the Fruit and Vegetable Dispute Resolution Corporation known as the DRC for fruit and vegetables. Sure, okay. And well, look, uh, it's all, you know, pardon the, the, the sort of language pun here, it's all Greek to me. Um, <laughs> what 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 does the uh you know the average commercial arbitration or commercial person lawyer working in this field i mean what what is the key thing that they might need to know about that say a commodities case ends up on their desk what's the, the first thing they should do research the business and research that product because it's really about the product you need to understand that particular commodity how does it work how do you uh what kind of inspection inspection does one expect 
um, on arrival, right? You need to understand incoterms, you because it's all about you know shipping products internationally, right? Um, the other thing that you need to know is if you're going to be into getting into an ar a commodities arbitration, it can be very different from what we're used to in ICC, you know, um, LCIA, ICDR, CF kind of arbitration. Oftentimes, you are going to be facing arbitrators that are not lawyers at all. Um, if you have a hearing, your client might not be permitted to have a lawyer ad, as an advocate at the hearing be present, right, and conduct the hearing. You might not be able to have to be there to represent your client. Um, I think those are two of the biggest points that distinguish commodities arbitration from classic international commercial arbitration. All right. I'm going to ask you one more question on commodities um, at the at the sort of risk of opening a whole different can of worms. How how did Tiffany Compress find herself doing commodities work? <laughs> so my entire family is involved in food and ag. Um, uh -huh. My dad, after he left the service, the Foreign Service for the Dominican Republic, he um, he and his nine siblings had inherited a massive farm. And so he bought out his siblings, not all of them, but most of them. Um, and he grew products, you know, fruits and vegetables, and exported them to the United States and to Europe. And um, my, I have other family members who are in the business. My sister imports and distributes. She, she and her husband have a big company importing and distribute, distributing fruits and vegetables from South America and Central America throughout the United States. Um, my mother's got a company, um, as a customs broker. So basically handling the importation of that product, um, the entry through customs of those products into the United States. And because they're perishable products, they really have several unique um, issues that come with that perishability. You know, speed is of the essence, time is of the essence. Um, there are certain inspections that need to take place. Um, and the CISG applica application to all of that also changes with that time sensitivity. Sure. I can get really nerdy about this. So. <laughs> well, look, I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could. Um, but I understand that, uh, you know, we have a, a handful of other topics to get to. So we'll leave that for there now. And uh, we'll have to talk commodities more, more in depth. I understand, Tiffany, that you also do a lot of work in the shipping industry and with supply chains and that kind of stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I got I got it because I I knew from my friends and family in the business. I mean, I grew up in this industry, right? So I knew the players. I knew how the you know I grew up going to warehouses and going to farms, and so I I knew the commodity like the back of my hand, right? Like that industry and in terms of fruits and vegetables generally. And now with all of the supply chain stuff, those same clients that have been with me for years um, are coming to me with these concerns about. Uh, delays and they're particularly vulnerable to these the issues in the supply chain because their products are perishable, right? So if you are a uh, mango company and you have you know massive farms and growers that you work with in South America, and suddenly that product is taking two, three, four weeks extra to get from the port in South America to the buyer's warehouse in the United States, this shelf life is gone. 
And that means the value of that product is gone because it is dying with every passing moment, literally. So a lot of times I've got clients that are facing delays that are so tremendous that by the time that they get the product out of the port, it's already rotten. I've had clients tell me stories that they, you know, the somebody went to the surveyor or inspector went to inspect the product when it was unloaded from the container and the container was oozing because the product had run in the container waiting for, you know, for the boat to be able to dock, for the, you know, the container to be able to be taken out for whatever it was. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty dire stuff. And that's, um, that's a problem that's been ongoing. And so, you know, I wasn't gonna, <laughs> Um, knowing as much as I know about the product and about my client's business, you know, they wanted me to handle these claims for them. I guess, you know, one other thing that I, we certainly want to talk with you about is in the time that you and I have known each other, you've joined a law firm, you've become a partner at a law firm called Fisher Broyles. And we talked about that a little bit at the beginning. Um, Fisher Broyles, I know, does things a little bit differently than some other boutiques. Can you tell me a little bit about Fisher Broyles and the way that you guys run your shop and the way that you guys uh, deal with clients? Well, it's so the primary philosophy is to be fast, um, you know, highly responsive, efficient and to add value. And one of the things that I love about the firm, I mean, there's so many things um, I, I can't believe I'm this happy two years in at a law firm. I, I really was considering leaving the entire law firm structure behind. But the firm is premised on having low overhead. Right. So we don't have a lot of physical office space. And that means that we don't spend a third of our revenue on overhead. We spend significantly less on overhead, which means that we can be more flexible with our clients with respect to rates. And it also means that we can do that and also take home a little bit more than we would otherwise, right? Um, sure. That means you have happier lawyers. Um, I'll tell you that my concern when I came to the firm in particular was, I have a lot of clients um, that need services beyond what I can personally provide, right? They need services that are not dispute resolution services. They need IP services. They need corporate, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I was concerned that because of the financial structure, my partners might not be eager to work on matters that were not their clients, right? Matters that they didn't originate. But it turns out to be completely the opposite. I have never collaborated with my partners as much as I have at this firm. Um, my partners have been great. They have enabled me to take a vacation for the first time in 10 years, like a true disconnect vacation, which mm. I hadn't done in about 10 years. So it was pretty exciting. <laughs> um, and they really, um, you know, everybody's partner level. We don't have associates. So that means that we don't train. Um, which certainly cuts down on the amount of time that it might take me to get, for example, a memo ready for the client. Because while, yes, a junior associate can do it more inexpensively, it'll take them more hours. And then I have to go and review that work, which I refuse to bill a client for, right, for reviewing and fixing work that a junior associate has done um, or that an associate has done. So I feel empowered because I have an entire team backing me that is just as invested as I am in the success of the endeavor, right, of the matter, um, the success of my client, and I am in theirs. You know, I, I work with my partner's clients as well, and 
you know, it's not to say that everything is perfect. There's always stuff that can be better, right? But the firm is at least open to hearing that um, and working on things. And I also find that, yeah, every place has people that you're like, meh, not super keen to work with them or what have you. But by and large, I have thoroughly enjoyed working with my partners. I mean, it, more than any other firm I've worked at. So I, I really commend them for that. I think a lot of it has to do with their um, excellent recruiting. Um, um, there's a word for that. They tend to be very good at sussing out who would be a good fit. And I think right. that's important. It's very entrepreneurial. Yeah. And I guess, you know, a little bit of the, the question that comes to mind, if you don't have any associates, is you guys go about doing your recruiting. So we have an in-house team that recruits um, for us exclusively. We also have a program which is phenomenal because I think it's um, part of the reason for the firm's success. So when a partner brings in another partner for the entire remainder of the time that they are both at the law firm. So let's say I bring in somebody else and they're in the law firm and I'm in the law firm for the next 10 years. And for the next 10 years, the person that brought in that new partner will earn 2% of that partner's revenue for the duration. So if that partner has a big book of business, they get 2% of everything that they bring in every year. And that comes out of the house's portion. The house always gets 20%. Okay, so it's, no. I think it incentivizes uh, people to partners. I think it incentivizes partners to bring in good quality new partners that will stick around and that they will want to work with and by extension the rest of us will want to work with and they'll want to work with us yeah no i think i mean yeah you you definitely then have a have a, a grounds to not only look forward to working with somebody but their success is your success right precisely the incentives are aligned very well um well, and then one last question before we move off of uh, the topic of, of Bishop Royals in particular. Um, so you've talked about, um, you know, before we leave the, the topic of Bishop Royals, um, you've talked about the speed and the efficiency and the um, thoughtful billing and those types of things with Bishop Royals. What else do people need to know about the firm that may not be familiar with? Uh, with well, we have about 300 partners right now. Um, we've got about 23, 24 offices, including London. We're in the middle of um, a global expansion that I cannot fully dis discuss, but uh, there will be news coming up. And we are part of the MLA 200, and we hit another milestone, which was that we actually had the highest growth within the MLA 200. Wow. So we're pretty proud of that. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Why, thank you. <laughs> and thanks to my awesome partners and managing partners. Of course, of course. And uh, well, 300 is probably too many to tag all of them, but we'll tag the firm uh, when we post the episode. <laughs> now, Tiffany, one last thing that we want to get into before uh, we, we go into the last stretch here. Um, now, I know from some of our other conversations, you're a bit of a SCOTUS, a U.S. Supreme Court nerd. Um, do you have any thoughts on this term's decisions that relate to arbitration, dispute resolution, um, maybe something in the arbitration context in particular? 
Well, obviously, the recent decision on 1782 comes to mind. I can't remember a time when I was so excited to read a decision. Um, I really felt like just nerd queen in that moment. <laughs> and I was texting all my friends, including you. <laughs> um, and I was very interested to see the reaction from the community. So my take is that they made the right decision for the wrong reason. Um, and I think that that's because for a number of reasons. One of them is that extensive discovery is goes against the spirit of international arbitration. Sure. Um, so I think that that's, that's really the my main sort of qualm about applying 1782 to, um, to international commercial arbitration. That said, I know that, you know, the United States is not the only country with a law like this. Um, I've advised clients in cases before where, you know, we've spoken with local counsel in country X and country X also has a law whereby we can get some, you know, interesting information and some discovery-ish materials. Um, so that's not to say that an imbalance could not exist, right? Because then there's that problem. Um, they go together being beyond the scope, but then it's only for one party, right? For the whoever has stuff in the US or in whatever nation we're talking about that has this kind of law. Um, but I thought that the community would have a different perspective. And I was excited to see that many people felt the same way. Um, and I've, you know, I've read all kinds of articles and had all kinds of discussions with friends and, and colleagues in the in the practice area about it. And it's just, it's been interesting to see everybody's take, but ultimately I, I really believe that it goes, this kind of discovery goes against the the, um, the spirit of arbitration. And if you want it, you can always write it into your clause. So I don't, I don't see, I don't see that there's not a way to, to make a change if that's what the client wants and it's in their best interest. You know, the difficulty is that, of course, you can't predict exactly what kind of dispute will come up. But generally, in most circumstances, you can have an idea of where the balance of the information will be. Right. Like with my commodities cases, the growers, if you know, on the grower side versus a distributor, I'll know that generally the distributor is going to be the one with most of the information that will be needed. Um, in most cases, given the kinds of disputes that are most likely to arise, you know, but not everything turns out that way, but um, it's something to think about. Sure. No, I mean, and that's, uh, I think uh, that that's probably pretty, pretty close to what I've heard from most folks. Um, I haven't heard anyone except for the folks that want to go fishing with big um, multinational U.S.-based clients that, that this is a bad decision. Um, I'm glad to hear that uh, that we're our 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 um, investigations have been aligned or are aligned the outcome of our little mini unofficial investigations <laughs> that's right that's right okay well look um let's shift focus just a little bit um you know back to talking about a little bit about your journey through the practice of law and through your professional career who have been some of your role models, mentors, guiding forces, anything like that in your career? I have had so many that I couldn't name them, um, but I will give a couple of shout outs. Uh, Vincent Baccarella is the attorney that I 
worked with when I was first thinking about going into law and I was his first receptionist when he opened his own firm and he really believed in me and he gave me a lot of work that was quite substantive and um, really encouraged me to pursue this as a career. So I definitely owe him a big hug for that, um, at least. Um, Sarah Francois Ponce, who I've already mentioned, that opened my eyes to international arbitration and in particular investment um, treaty arbitration, investor state arbitration. Micah McElrath, who I worked with when I was at uh, GE Oil and Gas briefly and who introduced me to you, no less, um, and who is still a you know, a big influence and a, somebody that I go to for advice and to to think about and think through uh, some interesting issues that we come across. Um, John Rooney, who's an international arbitration practitioner in Miami, who has also um, encouraged me and made introductions for me and just been all around wonderful. And Pascal Chagney, who's still at Denton's um, and doing international M&A and who, um, showed me and encouraged me, um, showed me the reality that it was possible and encouraged me to uh, expand my career into France, which is something that I had always wanted to do. And I kind of realized working with him and through his guidance that that I could make the life that I wanted a reality. And that's, you know, that's huge. No, it absolutely is. And, um, and yeah, that, that, that is a great uh, lineup of, of, of influences. I mean, yeah, and appreciating that you know, you've done so much that it would be impossible to name all of them, but, but that's a pretty good set. That's a pretty good set. All right. Well, look, next question. And this one is a little bit, I, I always enjoy these because it, it's fun to see what people are getting into. Um, what's on your bookshelf? What are you reading these days? Okay. So I just finished reading, funny that you mentioned SCOTUS. I was just reading The Nine, which is a book that came out, um, I think it came out when I was in law school around 09, 07, I think it was, maybe it was 07. So this, this, the, you know, the lineup at SCOTUS was different at the time. And, sure. um, and I had always wanted to read the book, but there were always other things that I ended up reading. So finally, I, I read it right when the leak happened, um, when the draft abortion decision was leaked. And it turns out that one third of the book is basically about SCOTUS jurisprudence regarding abortion. <laughs> so that was quite accidentally very timely. Well, um, what's the name of the book? The Nine. The Nine. Ah, okay. Sorry, you may have said that in here. Um, the Nine. Okay. Mm -hmm. Really, really interesting read. Um, you know, I I don't necessarily agree with the author on all of his takes. But um, but it was a very fun read and it was a good refresher on a lot of things that I've read and thought about before and I just hadn't revisited in quite a while. Um, but the, the timing was just too perfect. It was really great. Um, and the other thing, so I finished that one pretty recently and now I'm reading a book called Wine and War. Wine is one of my side projects. I love wine. And um, so Wine and War is about stories mostly in Europe um and France uh and Italy probably I haven't gotten there yet but um but I think it's it, it's very European based so far at least um things like it's stories from different people in the wine industry 
who have had experiences related to wine and war, mostly World War One and World War Two, from what I've seen. Like apparently Hitler had um, stolen a huge amount of wine, uh, champagne, um, and some producers um, and some wine houses actually hid a, much of their production, and they would build, you know. Uh, fake walls and all kinds of stuff to try to hide their production and how the war um, completely uh, devastated that the wine sector in terms of, you know, your vineyards are now literally a war zone. And it was also interesting to read it thinking about what's going on right now with the supply chain in Ukraine um, and how the Russian aggression in Ukraine has completely um, upturned, uh, that's not a word in English, hold on, has, um, bouleversé, uh, has, um, has a, um, occupational hazard, sorry, has, has deeply affected, uh, commodities that are coming out of that region, like grain. Um, and, you know, the planting cycles and harvesting cycles are, are being affected. And so it's interesting thinking about what's going on now and, and reading this book at this time. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's enough. It sounds really interesting. Um, is it, it, it what language is it in French or English or? Yeah, this one's in English. Oh, okay, okay. You gotta ask with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, and let's see. Moving right along to music. What kind of music are you into? Who are some of your favorite artists? Oh man, I my taste in music is is incredibly wide and broad. So obviously, I love opera. Um, I, yeah. and I love classical music. I, I really love trip hop. So it's like a niche 90s era of music, like Portishead, um, Morshiba. Um, there are some other classics there. Um, I really love Jay-Z. <laughs> I really <laughs> like a lot of old school hip hop. Um, I also love classic rock, big Led Zeppelin fan, Janis Joplin. Jefferson Airplane, um, and I also really like house music. Like lately, I've been listening to a lot of flight facilities and Rufus, so okay. you can definitely find me out dancing. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. No, that, 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 those are all good takes. Um, given the proximity, because it just came out last week uh, when we were recording this, how do you feel, if you've heard it yet, about the new Drake album? I haven't heard it yet, but I know it's come out, and I'm dying to really sit down and listen to it from beginning to end. I'm a big fan of listening to an album all the way through, the way that it was put together, right? Like in the order and just having a good listen. So I, I want to sit down and do that. That's how I feel about it, too. A lot of people have been giving my boy uh, Aubrey Graham a tough uh, bout about this last album because it's not a typical rap album. It's more... Um, like loungy kind of, you know, almost a like European stuff. But I think it's a bop. I think it's a bop. It's a good song for the song. Look, true artists have so many different phases during their careers. I mean, if you listen to Pink Floyd's early stuff and then their later stuff, I mean, it's diametrically different. You wouldn't even think it's the same band. Exactly. That's the point I've been making. I'm glad, I'm glad we got some agreement here, too. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. You know, we're coming here to uh, the, the last few questions. Tiffany, um, let's say you were approached by a current student, a recent graduate, or maybe someone that's looking to break into the field. Um, what advice would you give them to try and um, help prepare them to make that transition? Yeah, I love mentoring and I do a lot of it. So um, I think this is um, a very important question because I think 
Also, our practice area is very niche, like you said at the beginning, but it's also very, it's kind of prestige obsessed, right? Um, so I think a lot of people have a difficult time breaking in. I was having a conversation with one of my partners the other day, and we were talking about just that and how it's kind of like a club and you have to find your way into the secret club. And he says, well, it's not really like that anymore. And I was like, yeah, because we're in the club. Not because it's not like that, but now we're in it. So it doesn't feel that way. Um, I, I really think that the biggest part is not being monolingual. You need to speak more than one language to be in this sector. Um, I think many years ago, it might've been possible. I know several practitioners that are monolingual, um, particularly English, and we're successful. But I think that that has really changed. I think the time that that was a possibility is gone. You really need to speak more than one language, preferably at least three. Yeah, and you know, I would add to that, you know, even if it's not like you can do full legal work in a second or third language, like your ability just to even be conversational or to pick up the cultural aspects of said language and be able to at least converse in a basic level. Um, yeah, I think that, awesome. exactly. And I, I just think that, that that those are almost as good, you know, it, even if you can't do full proper legal work, that, that's the point I make about it. I think you're right. Right. I agree with you. What goes back to the client trust that we spoke about in the beginning, right? Um, really understand each other and really showing the client that you're that invested, you know, that you have commonality and that you are you understand where they're coming from right that's that's a big part of that and those cultural details are, are really critical much more important than i think we often give them credit for and the other thing that i think is really helpful um with respect to mastering a second language is that that second language is usually going to be from a civil law country and it's very helpful to be able to explain to clients from a civil law or a common law background, what the differences are between that and the opposite, right? Or the other, because it's not exactly the opposite, but to be able to go back and forth and give clients um, advice in a way that they will understand it, knowing where they come from is a massive advantage. Yeah. So no, that, going that a little further than speaking the language, but I, I think it's extremely important if you can get there. Okay. No, I think that I think that's a great point. And I mean, I think the other things, you know, that what we all know, being active in the field, you know, um, is obviously huge. And that can mean attending conferences, writing, all that kind of fun stuff. Right. Um, you know, I've got just a couple of final questions here for you, Tiffany. Um, Go ahead. And, and, and this one is uh, this next one is, is one I think is really important, especially as we're coming out of the age of COVID. How do you find time or what are some of the things you do to maintain and balance your mental and physical health? That's a, that's an excellent question. My firm just instituted a really great uh, mental health program, actually. Um, you know, it's tough because I deal with clients, like many of us in our practice area, I deal with clients all over the world and we're often not in the same time zone. And I work half the time in Paris and half the time in Miami. So that means that when I'm in Paris, um, my U.S. clients are working at a time when I'm going to bed, right? And when I first moved here, um, when I first started doing this, I, I was so excited because I can get up in the morning and take care of a bunch of things before they even wake up, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not um, trying to 
either play catch up, right, when I'm on the east coast of the United States and my clients are in, in Europe, for example, um, or Asia, um, and, and I'm not trying to deal with doing things I need to get done and also um, give clients that uh, singular attention at the same time. I have this group of hours where I can do things before anybody is up in the East Coast, and that's so exciting. But then I'm also working extraordinarily late. It's like 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. I haven't really taken a break. I'm just piling on through because I want to be responsive and handle things right away when I can. And I had to say, okay, at some point, I just got to put down the phone. And so I make it a point to talk to my clients and so that they know that um, I'm on a different time zone. And if it's critically important that you speak to me right now, this is how you can reach me, right? But you just have to kind of draw a line at one moment. I also have a mindfulness coach and a physical trainer, <laughs> and that helps enormously as well. You've got to stay active. We sit down at our desk so much. I mean, I never saw myself in a desk job, so I, trying to find ways to combat the sitting all day situation is uh, is very important to me. And so those are those are some of the ways I do that. And I play with my dog. I have breaks where I play with my dog, and that's really fun. I mean, yes, canine therapy is essential. Yes, <laughs> my favorite kind. Okay, next to last question here, Tiffany. Um, let's say that it's 5 p.m. on a Friday and you have somehow completely got all the stuff off your desk, clients aren't gonna reach you, everyone is, you do whatever you want, wave the magic wand. How do you spend your ideal weekend? What does that look like? There are so many options. It would probably involve really good food and really good wine. Um, if I'm in Miami, I'd probably swing by my favorite spot, which is a place called Boya Day in a strip mall in Little Haiti that just got a Michelin star, and I am so proud of them. And it's got like seven tables. It's really small. Mm. Um, so shout out to them. Um, God, here in, in Paris, I'd just stroll around, go have oysters uh, on Ile Saint-Louis or in Saint-Germain, and um, hang out with my friends. I'm just, I really enjoy just chill quality time with my friends and 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 my family so i find that i find that really special if i'm going to do something really funky you know i'll take a little weekend trip somewhere but uh yeah good wine good food good company just the basics yeah oh, that sounds like a good time sounds like a good time after yeah um all right well look tiffany the time has zoomed by we're at the end of our time together um, thank you for coming by the studio. Are you kidding, man? I, it's such an honor. I feel in such esteemed company with all of the incredible people you've interviewed. I'm, I'm very fortunate. Thank you. Well, we were very glad to have you. All right. Well, uh, any shout outs you want to give before you get out of here? Aside from the ones that I've already given, um, I would like to give a shout out to my peeps at my firm, my partners in international disputes, Jean Bird, Larry Schmadica, and Gine Rodriguez Perez, and my incredible management team, especially Michael Pearson and Joel Ferdinand, who always have my back. Thank you guys. We couldn't do it without you guys. All right, Tiffany. Well, look, we're done again. Thank you. And you want to sign us off? Uh, sure. 
I am Tiffany Compress, and there is no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time. So that was my conversation with Tiffany Compress. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation. I know I certainly did. And it's always so much fun catching up with her. As some of you may have seen, I'm in Paris right now, and I'm doing a pretty decent amount of recording and will be in the area a lot through the month of July. So if you're there or you'll be there soon, drop me a line and I'd love to catch up. Speaking of audience feedback, I'd love to hear from you. What are some topics you'd like to hear about? Are there any events in the arbitration community that you're excited about? What about your summer reading? It can be law related or not. Drop me a note in the comments or shoot us an email. Finally, last but not least, before you click off this episode, please don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn, share with a friend or colleague, and of course, leave a review. We're approaching over 20,000 downloads, which is already mind-blowing, and your support means the world to me. So, thank you. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by MoBeta Solutions. Show music is provided by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate all of your support, and you've been listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.